Welcome to Ballpark Banter, a podcast dedicated to exploring the 30 ballparks of Major League Baseball. We're a pair of ballpark gurus who've been to every MLB stadium and now want to take you through what it's like to catch a game at each. On this show, each ballpark gets its own episode where we'll explore its history and then dive deep into the facts, figures, and fun anecdotes that make it unique. Follow us on social at Ballpark Banter for regular doses of ballpark trivia and visit ballparkbanterpodcast.com for more information. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ballpark Banter where we're exploring the 30 ballparks of Major League Baseball, one by one in the same order as when we saw them all in one summer with our good friends. Eternal shout out, as always, to Kendall, Jack, and Ruben. My name is Travis Parker-Smith, and with me as he is on every episode is my friend and fellow ballpark guru, Kellen Larson. And today we are going to be heading to Denver to check out Coors Field, the home of the Colorado Rockies. Now, Kellen, as always, I'd like to start this episode by asking you, before we dive into the history and fun facts about this stadium, asking you what the first thing is that comes to mind when you think of Coors Field. I really notice the playing surface, uh, meaning the size and abundance of it. We'll talk a little later about why Coors Field has some of the deepest fences in baseball. And what that means is that you have the largest in-play playing surface. When you move the fences back, you have more outfield grass. So I believe Coors Field comes in number one largest outfield at an estimated area of 121,486 square feet. And of course, <laughs> tough to visualize a number like that. The point is, is that whenever I go to Coors Field, I, I definitely notice that the outfielders are, um, there's further, there's a lot more distance in between them and between them and the wall and such. Yeah, and they're playing a mile high, so they're A, running more, and B, breathing thinner air. It's a, it's a fun combination right. that, that often results in a decent amount of offense, which we're obviously going to touch on as we talk a little bit about park factor and stuff here. It's, it's interesting that you bring up the largest in-play field, you know, the deepest outfield, essentially, because Coors has a decent amount of foul territory, but the largest total surface absolutely belongs to the current home of the Oakland A's, the Coliseum, where there's pretty much i think almost as much surface outside of the lines and foul territory as there is inside the lines but we'll get there when we when we make it to oakland you're not going to find a a retro classic ballpark that can compete with um the coliseum or or multi-purpose stadiums of the past for total playing surface no not in the slightest but before we get into coors's architecture and what you can see when you visit there today Orient us a little bit to this ballpark. Give us a handful of fast facts to kind of set us up before we dive into Coors. This park is uh, the first park that we've explored in this series so far that has not experienced a name change. The park opened as Coors Field. It has stayed Coors Field, and it might remain Coors forever as the naming rights now go through 2047. Mm. The listed capacity for Coors Field is 50,144. That includes standing room, making it the second largest in MLB. I think that might take a lot of people by surprise that this ballpark built in the mid-90s is the second biggest by stated capacity in Major League Baseball, trailing only Dodger Stadium. And again, the 
slight caveat here is technically the Oakland Coliseum could be considered the biggest, but the A's have not and never will again open the entirety of their ballpark for for fans here. I think that's kind of a fascinating tidbit here that the Rockies, while they've never exactly been a stalwart franchise, if they do churn out a generation of great young talent and see sellouts in every single home game, they will go on to break records because this is an absolutely huge ballpark. And they've made use of that capacity, even though they haven't been the greatest team. They made the best use of that capacity for the 1998 All-Star Game, the largest crowd in Coors Field history, coming in at 51,267. So we've had a Hope visit for the largest crowd at Dodger Stadium. We had a U2 concert. At Angel Stadium, we had a regular season baseball game at Chase Field, and now the uh, Midsummer Classic, the All-Star Game exhibition for Coors Field as largest capacities of the respected ballparks. I wonder how this list is going to continue growing, and I, I just made the decision that I'm going to continue to list off each one of them as we go through every single ballpark. But before we jump ahead of ourselves, as always, I'd now like to take you through a history of the home of the Rockies. Coors Field came at the perfect time. Ground broke on this ballpark in 1992, which was just after Camden Yards opened in Baltimore. Camden Yards of course, swept away the era of the big, ugly, multi-purpose stadiums and welcomed this new era of baseball-only venues, what we more affectionately call ballparks. Go and listen to our History of the Timeline episode for a detailed analysis on this transitionary era of ballparkitecture. To give you perspective, though, Coors was the first baseball-only venue built in the National League since Dodger Stadium, which was constructed in 1959. Now, We led off by talking about how big Coors Field is, both in capacity and area of play, but originally Coors was supposed to be relatively small with an eyed capacity of less than 44,000. However, Rockies fans came out in droves for their inaugural season, which ironically was played at Mile High Stadium as Coors was under construction, and this broke an MLB attendance record for a single season of the Rockies attracting almost 4.5 million people that year. The architects of Coors saw that there was a clear attraction here and wanted to capitalize on it. So immediately the plans for the ballpark were altered and over 6,000 more seats were added to the original renderings to bring the capacity to over 50,000. The Rockies maintained an impressive attendance average of nearly 4 million for the greater part of the ensuing decade, albeit this has started to slip over the decades since. Now, one of the coolest things about the history of Coors Field is as they were digging the foundation for this ballpark, they actually discovered dinosaur bones beneath the surface. One of these was, quite awesomely, a triceratops skull that weighed a thousand pounds. This, of course, sparked an insane amount of interest among the Rockies faithful and the public, and there was actually a cry for the field to be named Jurassic Park, which, if that had stuck, I think might be the coolest name of any sports venue in the history of the world. However, corporate naming rights, of course, prevailed, and the ballpark took on the name instead of the area's beloved beer, Coors. They did, however, toss a nod to the dinosaur skull, as the Rockies' mascot is a big purple dinosaur named Dinger. Now, 
One of the most commonly stated things about Coors Field is that it's a hitter's park. This is because the ballpark is situated just below a mile high above sea level and marks it with a fun element that I'll touch on in the coming home section. This elevation, of course, helps offense with a combination of thin air and dry air, allowing baseballs to fly farther than they would at other parks of lower elevation. And after the 1999 season broke just a ton of MLB offensive records, Coors was starting to be seen as like a fairground for home runs with games totally straying from normality. People were calling it Williamsport, named after the Little League World Series field, and some even compared it to the NASA launch pad, calling it Coors Canaveral. To give you some perspective, the very first 1-0 game ever to be played at Coors Field was in 2005, 10 years after it opened. Park factors and walkability are maybe two of my biggest interest areas when it comes to this ballpark obsession that we have. And so, of course, Coors remains one of the most interesting ballparks to my eye. Many of you may already know this, but the park factors in Coors go beyond just um, fly balls go farther because of the thin air. The reason, of course, that they go farther when they're hit in the thin air is because there's less drag on the ball. Now, interestingly, the lack of drag comes into play, not just on batted balls, but on pitched balls. So one of the biggest reasons for cores being a hitter's park in the first place is because the pitches themselves are less effective, not just because the balls go farther when they're hit. Um, specifically breaking pitches, the they spin less. They have less air to grab onto. The Magnus effect of the spin on curveballs and sliders and other breaking pitches is reduced. And so there's a lot fewer strikeouts and a lot more contact. As we'll uh, touch on, Travis, it's not any longer with the humidor and the um, extended outfield walls. It's not the most Homer happy park in baseball, right? However, it still is the most hitter-friendly park in baseball. StatCast, uh, Baseball Savant has StatCast metrics that measure park factors. They scale it to 100, where 100 is average. Uh, over the la last three-year period, Coors Field is number one with a 111 offensive park factor. Fenway Park is number two at 109. Just for reference, Mariners T-Mobile Park is last at 93. But again, you know, they're just number 10 or so in uh, Homer rankings. Like, for example, Great American Ballpark has a 132 Homer uh, rate compared to 108 for Coors. But if you um, look at strikeouts, this is offensively oriented. So we're going in the other direction this time, um, meaning lower means fewer strikeouts. Rockies are um, Coors Field is last in, in strikeout rate basically at an 85 out of a hundred. So you get a ton more triples, a ton more hits, a lot more balls in play rather than just these big, huge homers. So if I understand that correctly, what you're saying is Coors gives up a good amount of home runs more than the average ballpark, but it's not the most homer friendly ballpark because they've obviously taken some measures that we're going to get into here in a second to essentially neutralize balls flying out of the park like they did in the mid nineties but it's still the most hitter-friendly park because, as you said, breaking pitches aren't breaking as much thanks to the lack of drag on the ball, and there's a ton of outfield space for the ball to roll into, essentially, which makes it the most right. hitter-friendly park. 
It's by far the most triple friendly park. I, I enjoy seeing triples and, and inside the park homers uh, in baseball. So that's a, a point for Coors in my book. It's the most singles friendly park. That's has something to do with the outfield space, something to do with just more contact, fewer strikeouts. And it's the second friendliest doubles park beat only by Fenway because of the green monster. Well, and we'll get to Fenway and its park factor when we land in Boston. But to combat the severe impact that this thin air we've been describing and even a little bit of wind we're having on the game of baseball, Coors did install a handful of measures to try and neutralize this insane offensive advantage. One was, as we stated, they moved the fences back. They created a bigger outfield, which of course helped a bit, but the other was far more interesting and might I say universally impactful in baseball. In 2002, a gigantic humidor was installed at Coors, so baseballs could be stored in a regulated, more normal environment. The humidor is the size of a standard room and keeps thousands of baseballs ready for Rockies games in hopes of nullifying some of the impact the elevation will have on the aerodynamics of the ball. In case you can't tell, it worked. Since the installation of the humidor and the fences being moved back, Coors did slowly succeed in dropping its park factor from an offensive standpoint from home runs. Now the ballpark sees a slightly more average number. It's 10th, as Kellen said, as all other parks in MLB. But the most important thing here is its installation of the humidor triggered the installation of humidors throughout baseball as Major League Baseball attempts to reduce park factor across all of its ballparks. Now, before we dive into what you see if you go and catch a game at Coors today, as always, Kellen, Take us through the walkability of this park. How does the home of the Rockies fit into Denver? It's our best score yet. We'll give it a 70 on the 20 to 80 scouting scale. This is a, a great prospect or, or great ball player, if you will. I think that Coors is very representative of the retro classic style of ballpark in many ways. One of the ways that it's very representative is in its setting. It's set in the Lodo neighborhood of downtown Denver. It's claims to be one of Denver's oldest neighborhoods, and it's home now to many, many, an abundance, in fact, of breweries and restaurants and markets and housing. And, and the ballpark acts as this centerpiece for the neighborhood that fits in really, really well. And and I think that's one of the big factors why Coors has seen such great attendance numbers over the years, probably some of the most disparate attendance numbers compared to the quality of the team over the years. I think one of the reasons why is because it's really pleasant. It's a pleasant place to come. It's easy to get to by however you would like to get there, transit, walking, not even a bad park to drive to, it seems. and. I think that's definitely one of the reasons why it's attractive for, say, families to spend their time and money going out in the neighborhood and and having a nice experience at the ballpark. Yeah, and they've continued to develop the neighborhood by just investing more and more into businesses. And we're going to talk here in just a second about breweries and how that's not only a forte of the neighborhood, but a forte of the ballpark as well. And as you said, Coors sees great attendance because it's a fun place to go, even if the team isn't the best, which the Rockies have been kind of tough over the past greater part of the past decade or so people will still show up for their rocky games because it's a nice experience 
Do you dream of visiting every major league ballpark? Know someone who does? Or maybe you need a new gift idea for a baseball addict in your life? Check out Touch Em All, a book written by me, Travis Parker Smith, host of this show. Tracing the tale of four teenagers who drove a beat-up old hippie bus to all 30 parks in one summer, this memoir is a fun, easy read that's perfect for this baseball season. And it's the inspiration for this podcast. Order it online or, preferably, from your local bookstore. And head to ballparkbanterpodcast.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. We're now going to take you around the bases of Coors Field, giving you three things where if you're lucky enough to go and see a game here, you should absolutely check out, or if not, you should at least know about. Kellen, I just talked about breweries. What's on first at Coors? On first is the Sandlot Brewery. So to reemphasize, we are not a, a ballpark foodie podcast or, or content area. There's plenty of places to find that content if you wish. Usually we want to talk about things with more staying power as it relates to the ballpark and the food and drink isn't often one of those things that is so super consistent year to year. But sometimes, as was the case in Dodger Stadium when we talked about the Dodger dog, a food or a drink is a total staple of that ballpark. And we're we're confident that that's not going to change for a long time. Coors Field is, is decidedly home to one of these. On the edge of the ballpark, just behind the right field stands, is the Sandlot Brewery. It's marked by this excellent neon facade that shows a runner sliding on into home. Yeah, it's something you can't miss during a night game if you're walking by Coors, even if the Rockies aren't playing this really cool mosaic of neon lights that shows, as you said, a, a, a play at the plate is, is kind of a standout and cool photo opportunity on its own. But it also marks this really cool, might I say, historic brewery. It is historic. In, in fact, Sandlot Brewing prides itself on being the first brewery inside of a major league ballpark. For more context, this is where Blue Moon, the popular Belgian-style wheat beer, was originally created. So if you've had a, a Blue Moon with an orange, you know who to thank. And Blue Moon, now the beer, labels itself as having been born in a ballpark. One of the coolest taglines, I think, That's that any, any brand line. can have. I mean, this is, you know, this is not a sponsored segment, but I might get a Blue Moon next time I'm out at a ball game. I haven't had one in a while. The Sandlot Brewery is run by Coors, but does a lot more than just vend the Rocky Mountain Light beer and the Blue Moon original. Also, it rotates many craft brews on tap throughout the season with a list that fans can check up on if they're popping in before the game. If you hold a ticket, you can enter the Sandlot Brewing 90 minutes before first pitch. Grabbing a Blue Moon or a Coors or something else at Sandlot is a key part of enjoying a game at Coors. And if you're into the Denver beer scene, speaks to the walkability. There are eight or 10 more breweries within just like a 10 block radius of Coors. Yeah, so maybe you you start your day at one of those breweries, you go to the game, you hit up Sandlot, and then you wrap your day by trying to hit as many of the other breweries as you can. One of the advantages, if you're drinking Coors Light, for example, is that you can <laughs> you can have, 
several <laughs> and still still be uh, able to remember what happens in the game. On that note, <laughs> <laughs> rounding first and heading to second. On second base at Coors Field is what we like to call the forest. Now, it's a rarity that ballparks get very clever with their batter's eye. For those of you who don't know, the batter's eye is the big dark splotch right behind center field that all bar- ballparks are required to have so that the batter can pick up the ball out of the pitcher's hand. If it was just straight fans back there, the ball would easily get you know blended into everybody's clothing and stuff like that. So it has to be a dark, neutral color. Most choose green. The Yankees have their big black. It's just called the black slab out in center field. But here in Colorado, they maybe have the coolest batter's eye. They went with green, which is pretty typical of ballparks, but it's green in every nature of the word. Instead of just the color, Coors has gathered pine trees and boulders from across the state and planted a huge forest out there beyond the center field wall. There's also a fountain in the middle of it all, and when a Rocky hits a home run or the team wins, geysers shoot up atop the trees from the fountain. The trees and the rocks creep into the visiting bullpen, and numerous times throughout a game, the camera might show a pitcher warming up and throwing to a bullpen catcher whose backstop is literally like a handful of tree stumps. Uh, The proximity has meant that the forest is not just popular with fans, it's also popular with visiting players as well. Spotting the shade and the close nature of the foliage, especially maybe during a midsummer game in the middle of the day at Coors when the sun is beating down on you because you're playing a mile high, can mean that it's pretty hot. And on a particularly hot day, a pitcher sitting out in the bullpen with nothing better to do might go and find some shade in the trees. One of the best moments of this probably is Fernando Rodney, then of the Seattle Mariners in August of 2015, simply decided to kick back and use the shade provided by one large pine and just camp out for a while. Go and Google a picture of that to see what we're talking about. If you ask me, it's not a bad spot to watch a ball game. Rounding second and heading to third, Kellen, staying with kind of a natural title of an element of the ballpark, but getting pretty different with its actuality, what's on third at Coors Field? On third is the rock pile. As you stated in the history of the ballpark, the initial plans for Coors Field had a capacity of only around 44,000 seats. And when the designers decided to expand the capacity, they needed to find an easy way to add seats without changing too much of the existing structure, which was already well under construction. So they opted to add this unique section deep beyond center field, where over 2,000 seats could be built in a bleacher-style setup without changing any of the existing plans. This section, called the Rock Pile, sits just above that forest we were talking about and is adorned with metal benches stacked on top of each other that lead to this kind of rounded top. So just for everybody to picture this, you know, these metal benches are pretty standard for like high school seating, you know, that like really uncomfortable. They get really hot when they soak up the sun. They're great for a general admission part of like any sort of big stadium. They used to be pretty standard across stadiums, but since the retro classic design kind of popularized that dark forest green seating, silver benches have actually kind of become a rarity. And this is one of the cooler elements where they're still very popular. But with this uncomfortable seating that's located pretty far away, They've also found a good way to still entice people to come, right? Yeah, some of the 
affordable, cheapest tickets in any ballpark. So when originally opened, the seats in the rock pile were sold at just $1 per seat. And today there's pricing starting at $4 for adults and like still $1 for children or seniors. And most of these tickets can be purchased a day of just to get in the ballpark. Among the rising prices of tickets across the sport, this price is simply excellent. But of course, you do get what you pay for. As the last second add-on to the ballpark, it's really far away from the action. The nearest seat is 480 feet from home plate, and the farthest seat is 580 feet from home plate. So if you're sitting here, even with the thin air, don't bother to bring your glove. Mm -mm. Even with the way that some balls still totally fly out of cores, no player has ever hit a homer that reached all the way to the rock pile. This is an interesting exercise here, maybe something we'll have to explore. But I wonder what ballpark has the seat that is the closest to the field of play. That might be really tough to measure because so many seats are like right over the fence or right on the foul line, like in Wrigley and stuff. But perhaps more interesting is what ballpark has the seat that's the farthest away from the field of play or maybe the farthest away from home plate. 580 feet at Coors Field might be uh, might might be up there, at least in contention. I, I can't quite think of any other ballpark that uh, might have this, but maybe one will pop up. We'll have to do some research on that at some point. Maybe maybe the Wrigley rooftops, although that's not even considered part of the actual park, are considered farther away. But Yeah, well, it's unofficial seating, but also there has been at least one homer hit there, Glen Allen Hill. Oh, yeah. One that's across right. the street into the, the Wrigley rooftop. That's a, an amazing YouTube video. If you want to go and see just an absolute moonshot in the history of baseball, <laughs> Google Glen Allen Hill Wrigley. Uh, but maybe at some point somebody will hit one 480 feet dead center at Coors. Perhaps if they remove the humidor uh, and, and allow those balls to really fly. Until then, though, no home runs are reaching there. So if you do go to Coors and you do snag a day of rock pile ticket for four bucks or a dollar, Maybe you want to sit out there. Maybe you want to go to one of like the many standing pavilions and beer bars throughout the ballpark. Rounding third and coming home, we hinted at this earlier, but Coors Field has a very fun quirk about it. Well, most of the seats in the ballpark are this aforementioned forest green, other than those out in the rock pile. The seats in the 20th row of the upper deck are purple, and they create a thin ring around the upper echelon of the stadium. This row marks 5,280 feet above sea level, which gives fans the unique ability to say that they were literally a mile high while watching a Rockies game. That's so cool. I love that. That wraps it up for this episode of Ballpark Banter. If you're enjoying our show and want to support our work, you can buy us a hot dog at the next game we attend by heading to ballparkbanterpodcast.com. While you're there, be sure to check out the book Touch Em All by Travis Parker Smith to learn more about our story and the reason behind the order in which we explore these ballparks. Special thanks as always to Kendall Young, Jack Wilson, and Ruben Palmer for their imperative role in the inspiration of this show, and to all the fans out there who dream of catching a game in every Major League ballpark. Ballpark.